Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Everybody's so quiet this morning. That's a good deal. I I don't know. Alabama, they they throw they got to throw money to somebody. So who knows? I have no. It's all money driven. Well, I don't think they asked for that either. But uh, you know, Alabama's not the only team that plays teams like that. You know, there's been a couple. And you're like, okay, but. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Ohio State is too. So, <laughs> yeah, anyway. All right, Romans chapter 9. We'll do something serious here for a minute. Romans chapter 9. Um, start reading here in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And uh, we introduced the chapter last time we introduced the section here and uh, the we saw the issue in verse 1 2 and 3 last time that as Paul gets going here I say the truth in Christ I lie not and what's happening now in chapters 9 10 and 11 is Paul is gonna actually deal with several different uh, doctrinal issues in this section First, he's going to illustrate for you and I of why 9, 10, and 11, this information sits right here, and that's because of identifying who is the real instigator behind our sufferings. And, and coming out of chapter 8, verse 35, and following there as we come out and understanding that we're suffering because of our identity in Christ, and that's the issue of religion. The great obstacle that stands before the church, the body of Christ, is religion, okay? And the, as the adversary uses the religion to, to then withstand what God's doing. Then, in, then Paul's going to deal with the objections that raise when he says, when he starts, Acts 9, a new agency is now here, a new group of people are now here, and God's dealing with them, and Israel is accursed. If you look there at verse 3, he says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my kin. Well, Israel has been accursed, and that issue of being accursed is the issue of being cut off, separated from God. They are no longer the privileged people in the earth. Now God is doing something else with a new agency, with the Gentiles and the unbelieving Jew, and are moving forward. So instantly what will happen when, that, when you say that, or when Paul says it, they call him a liar. So he starts in verse 1, I lie not. I'm, I'm not lying here, guy. I'm telling you the truth. And again, we looked last time that every time he says, I lie, through his epistles, it's in defense of his apostleship, his ministry, his message, and, and what God is doing through him. And again, Israel's problem here, they're going to raise some objections. We'll start seeing them here next time in verse 6 
about the word of God not being reliable. Then they call God the question about him not being un, him being uh, not fair and unrighteous and all this stuff. And at the end, the end of chapter six, we come to find out that Israel's problem is they are operated in unbelief. It wasn't God. God's not the problem. Actually. One of the other areas that Paul's going to demonstrate in 9, 10, and 11 is God is just, and he is right to interrupt what he's doing with the nation of Israel and go do something different and new. He didn't violate anything. He's interrupted Israel's program. By the way, do you see how verse 5 ends with an amen? That's an indication there that... uh, The promises that were made to Israel have not been rescinded. They're going to be fulfilled out, and they're going to be carried out. And we'll see that in Romans 11 when we get over there in verse 26 where he says, And yea, all Israel shall be saved. So God doesn't, he just, he interrupts them. He cancels the moving forward. He temporarily puts a hold on it. It's going to do something new, and what Paul's going to do here now is he's going to answer those objections in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, he's going to give us a current picture of where Israel is and what Israel needs. And then verse chapter 11, he continues that, and then he also says, oh, and by the way, the future for Israel is still bright. And when he talks here again about Israel, this is national Israel especially in chapter 9. He's not talking about the individual. Individual justification all through Scripture is done by faith in the Word of God to them. Okay? What did the Word of God say to the hearer, and did then they respond positively if they do? Abraham, his, uh, he believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What did he believe God about? What was God's word to him? You're going to have a son. You're going to have a seed. See? He, nothing about trusting the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Abraham knew nothing of that event. The old timers will say that the, the Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. They knew nothing about the cross. The prophets write the information, you know, the, the passage in Peter, and they, they want to know, but... The Holy Spirit says it's not for you to know. You just need to write it. So they don't look forward to anything. In the Lord's earthly ministry, when he goes in and he begins to tell the 12 apostles about him going to go and die and be buried and so forth, Peter fights him about it, rebukes him about it, and they just don't. So that's not what Abraham believed. What did Abraham believe? What did the word of God say to him? Well, in Abraham's case, you're going to have a son. And, uh, and, and so it was counted unto him for righteousness. I take, you take Noah. <laughs> what did Noah believe? It's going to flood. There's going to be judgment. It's raining. Build the boats. And I use those because they're not, there is nothing in Scripture about them trusting in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet they were what? Justified. Why? Because they had faith in what the Word of God said to them. So when you get into the Old Testament here, especially when we come through chapters 9 and 10 and 11, you have to remember, he's not necessarily, when he's talking about individuals, it will be very evident 
In chapter 9, he's not. He's talking on a national scale. And we need to remember that. Because verse 4, what does he say? Who are Israelites? Nationally. There's a, na- a national thing here. And what's going to happen now in, in verse 4 and 5 this morning is Paul's going to give us a history lesson. He's going to give us a quick overview of Israel's history. And again, verse 5 ends with amen. So all of this information that's coming at us here is yet future to be fulfilled because what did God do? He interrupted it. So when he talks there about the adoption and the covenants and the glory and the giving of the law, some of that is still future. They have not experienced that yet. So as we get into this, again, we we need to remember as we go forward, there's some things happening here that Israel hasn't received yet, but they've been promised, and then one day they will get that. So as we begin, you know, I... We're getting into this issue in the first five verses where Paul is demonstrating that Israel is accursed. By the way, David talks there in Psalms, we looked last time, about their table is a snare. This is their table, verse 4 and 5. And it is a snare. Okay? It's a trap. It's not going to be a blessing to them here. This is what's going to get them in trouble. If you look there at the end of chapter 9, if you look there at verse 30, the, the, the uh, conclusion, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith, but Israel, again, national Israel, who, I'm sorry, which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they, that's the Jew, Israel, sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. So the ultimate conclusion is, is the problem is, is they're sinners. They're sons of Adam, and their unbelief is what nailed them. And that's what needs to be answered. And then that's why in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul will say, my heart's desire for Israel is, is that they might be saved saved how well not under their program their program's been set aside it's been interrupted how under the present dispensation of grace paul's gospel now when you come back in here into uh, verse four and five and really the whole section there's something that we need to be aware of and to to recognize because some of this has, has, has trickled into some of our thinking. And that there is really two ways to study this section. Okay? And uh, there's the mid-Acts dispensational Bible study way, rightly dividing the word of truth, which, by the way, what, what do you think we're going to do? That one. Okay? Or there is, and there is what is called the covenant reform theology Bible study, the Calvinistic ideas. And what covenant theology does is they actually, some of their thinking, covenant theology, covenant reform theology, because they don't like the word Calvinist because it carries a bad name even amongst themselves, so they use the word reform. 
that way of think, that theology, that system, is what dominates Christianity today. And that system takes what Paul is trying to teach us here, in, especially in 9, 10, and 11, and it destroys the doctrine. And we need to be aware of that. It is impossible to understand what Paul is teaching in chapters 9, 10, and 11 unless you approach it from a mid-Acts dispensational, rightly dividing the word of truth manner. If you come at it from the covenant theology route, Christianity Today route, you destroy what he's trying to teach. All right? Mid-Acts dispensational, I'm just, I'm just going to say dispensational Bible study, okay? You know, you, I think you understand. Basically, in 9, 10, and 11, just kind of hone in here. When Paul says, who are Israelites, who are they? Israelites, literally Jews, literally the nation of Israel. So Israel or Israelite means what? Israel, Israelites, right? That's how dispensational Bible study looks. Covenant theology doesn't say that. Covenant theology says that Israel doesn't mean Israel. Rather, it's a figurative term to use to describe the church, the body of Christ today. It's figurative. It's spiritual Israel is who we are. Now, by the way, there is, Paul is going to tell us about a spiritual Israel. It's, they're called the little flock, the circumcision, the b believing remnant, those that follow, accepted Christ as their Messiah, followed him followed John the Baptist, followed the Lord Jesus Christ, followed the, the, the apostles, got into the little flock, were, what he says there to Nicodemus in John 3, born again. Okay? Spiritual Israel. So there, Paul isn't never going to say there's no spiritual Israel. The spiritual Israel is just who? These guys, the little flock. But co covenant theology says Israel is, it, it's, a, it's figurative Israel. And it's really talking about the church today. Dispensational Bible study, we, we approach it with Paul is referring to a literal, physical, visible, earthly, national nation who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant theology, they say, no, it's figurative for a spiritual group and it's really a reference to the church. And that kingdom is in the hearts of men. It's not a literal, physical, visible, king, real thing. It's a spiritual thing found in the hearts of men. Okay? Dispensational will come here. And we recognize that the church, the body of Christ, is not prophesied in the Old Testament. Rather, it's a secret thing. It's hidden God. Covenant theology comes in and they will argue that the Old Testament may prophesy about a coming New Testament church, but that really is simply a reference to the church, the body of Christ. Do you begin to see the trouble 
So when we come into chapter 9 and 10 and 11 here, and do we have an adoption? Yeah. It's not their adoption, though. The covenant folks say it is their adoption. But it's not their See how we have, a, we have to make a distinction here. Dispensational Bible study will say that the church, the body of Christ, the dispensation of grace is a parenthesis. It's an interruption in God's program for all the ages. It's a component of it. The covenant theology idea comes in and says, no, the church is the culmination of what God says is going to happen in all of the ages. That's, that's extremely different. So when you begin to look at some of the things here, especially when we get into chapter 10 and we talk about the issue of confessing with your mouth, then you get all of this covenant ideas flowed into grace believers and they suck it up because it sounds right and sounds good rather than saying, hang on a minute, let's look at what's really going on here and what is Paul really after. So again, as we look here at the chapter and as we begin to get into this, we need to remember how are we going to study this? And these two different camps, by the way, covenant theology doesn't like dispensational Bible study at all because we, we make what? Distinctions. They say there are no distinctions. It's just uh, Israel got tasked with facing all the curses so the church can have all the blessings. And I'm like, what rock did you just crawl out from underneath? You know? We will, the <laughs> dispensationals say God has a unique and distinct place for Israel in which the church, the body of Christ, cannot replace, and they have a promise that the church cannot fulfill. You follow that? They have a promise we don't get, they have a purpose we can't fulfill. You know what covenant theology says? Nope. We replace them and we fulfill their promise. And while we appreciate the distinctions between Israel, prophecy, and church, and mystery, the covenant theology, they just move them together. So as we go through here, we need to be very mindful because Paul, your Bible, Scripture... The Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, does not talk like a Calvinist, doesn't talk like a covenant theologist. They talk like a dispensationalist. Even in the Lord's earthly ministry, there are dispensations that he identifies. Boom, here it is. We're changing now how I'm dealing with you guys. We're in Mark on Wednesday night. We're in Mark 4 in a wonderful place where the Lord does that. He's been talking to everybody, the multitudes, the whole bit. They've rejected him. Now he's talking to them in parables. That is a dispensational shift within that program. He talks to the parables, not so everybody can learn and get it and ooh and ah, but so that the unbelieving element doesn't get it and the believing element understands because he's going to give them the mysteries of the kingdom. Mystery would indicate what? Secret information, something new being revealed and he doesn't want that apostate nation hearing it and understanding it. He wants his little flock, believing remnant, to get it, and off they go. What is that? That is a dispensational shift right within the earthly ministry, okay? 
All right, so 9, 10, and 11, we're going to approach it from the dispensational viewpoint because we need to appreciate what God did do to Israel and will ultimately do through Israel. And Paul is going to help us come to that understanding. Now, verse 4, who are Israelites? Again, not about the church, and I, I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to go through this and say, "Well, the covenant says this," and we because when you hear what they say, if you know what is being said, you'll just say, "No, that's wrong." Okay, and you can do that for yourself. I look around the room and I do see adults, you know, and so forth. But again, who are Israelites? Notice Paul ends verse three: "My kinsmen according to the flesh." Who was he? We go over to Philippians and we get a pedigree. He was of the Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a tribe of Benjamin. So this is who he was a part of. I will remind you in verse 2 that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Paul knows and understands that him as Saul of Tarsus was leading Israel down the path of unbelief. He understands that. He knows that his destiny was the lake of fire. He understands that now. Back then, he did it what? Ignorantly in unbelief. That verse in Timothy, we, sometimes we read that ignorant and an unbelief, and there's no and in that verse. It's in unbelief. His ignorance was because of his unbelief. And that's why I said last time, we're going to see it here in a little bit, that you can be doing the law, following the law of Moses perfectly, blameless, Paul was, and still be going where? To hell, the lake of fire in Israel's program. And that's critical to catch here. Who are Israelites? Again, not about the church. This isn't a reference to you and I. This is a reference to national Israel, historical Israel, ethnic Israel, literal Israel, physical Israel, any other way you need it explained, okay? That's who we're talking about. They have lost their place of advantage, of privilege with God. He has set them aside. He's interrupted them. He, they are accursed. And again, the language, even in, within the, the, this section, ends over there in chapter 11 with them being the enemies of the gospel. As concerning the gospel, they are your enemies' sake. So th these guys are, again, he's talking about the group, the nation. Then 9.4 says, to whom pertaineth. And that's a, that's a wonderful way to say that. We, we know that that word pertain in regards to something. When you look up the etymology of that word, it goes into the Old English. It talks about, it carries the idea of possessing a, a legal right to something. So to whom it pertaineth. When we're dealing here with what God's doing in and through Israel, they have a legal claim to it. They have a covenant agreement with God. This isn't something he wrote on the back end of something. He sat there with Abraham and he made an agreement. Actually, in Genesis, when you read it, he makes the agreement with himself. Then he takes Abraham and does out the pieces and the sacrifice and says, okay, Abraham, you're going to participate in this with me. <laughs> and he, but he makes the agreement. You remember Moses? God said, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over with you. And what Moses remind him of? 
that little covenant you got back over there with Abraham, you can't do that. It, sorry, you know. Now, he could have done whatever he wants. He's God, but what then would he be? A liar. He'd have, been, he'd have told a lie. So, he, okay. So, to whom pertaineth? As Gentiles, we never had, nor will ever have, a legal claim to what God promised Israel. They belong to Israel. So when he says here, to whom pertaineth, he, he has, he's setting up something here very significant, very important, because God has a unique and distinct purpose and plan for Israel that the church, the body of Christ, the Gentiles cannot possibly replace, fulfill, take over, accomplish any of that. And, I mean, you think about a... Think about going to the bank and trying to get out of your mortgage and keep your house. What do they say? Talk to who? Talk to legal. Why? Because they got a legal abiding agreement. It's ironclad. There's no get out of, you know. <laughs> I was watching a TV show the other day, and uh, this the lady and the guy were arguing about some real estate, and she said, you didn't read the fine print, did you? And he just looked at her, and you could see, you know, and it's a show, so the face just go. No, I didn't. What's in the fine, you know, well, she had him over a barrel because of the fine print. There's, no, there's none of that here. If you think about verse 4, who pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Why did Christ come? He didn't come for you. Gentile, he came for who? Israel. You see? Because Israel is the mechanism then that the Gentile salvation goes to the Gentiles, but who's got to get saved first? Israel does. So when he says, For God so loved the world that he came, you know, John 3 16, you have to be very careful using that verse out there on the unsaved world. Because how's that verse get fulfilled? Through the nation of Israel doing her job. Then it goes out to the world. Now, you and I, we don't do that. We operate differently. It's a to the world first. It's an all-man thing. We don't have that mechanism. The mediator for you and I today between God and man is the man Christ Jesus. That's why we approach it completely different, in a different manner. The mediator between God and the Gentiles in time past is the nation of Israel. And they're to work through that inner So when you see this... Israel's got an advantage in their history. Come over to Ephesians 2. Take, get Ephesians 2, verse 11 and 12, verses we're familiar with, and then get um, Romans 4, and just see advantage and disadvantage, if you will. Look at Romans 4, verse 5. Who are Israelites? Okay, now look at Ephesians 2, 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past, what? Gentiles in the flesh, who are called, what? Uncircumcision. To be uncircumcised in the time past is to be cut off from the covenants and promises of God. Genesis 17, cut them off. They're, you're, 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 you know... 
Dad always said, cut him off at the knees and call him shorty. You're out. You lost. Who being, so, who are Israelites? So who has the advantage? Time passed. The Israelites do. Then he says, the adoption. Well, look, if you will, there. What are you called in verse 11, 211? You're called uncircumcised. Guess what you are not? You're not the son of God. Adoption has to do with sons and sonship status and the setting in the family, standing in the family. Guess what you're not? You're the uncircumcised dog. You're on the outside looking in. Then in chapter 4, and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the service of God. You see that the covenants and the, the law and the service of God and the promises? Well, look at verse 12. That at that time ye are without Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. What are you? Well, if you're an alien, you don't belong to one of the fathers. You're outside, again, the family. Then he says, uh, from the covenants. You're strangers from the covenants. If you're a stranger, what it, what's going on? It's not familiar to you. It's not something you would understand and know. You know, you guys come into church here, and you're familiar with the buildings. You know, when I went back to Minnesota, I'd never been in that building before. I took a tour. Why? I don't, you know, where is everything? And went over and opened up a couple closets. And, oh, okay, it's a closet. <laughs> no skeletons, but, okay, it's, you know. Then he says, you're without, uh, let's see, what do we got? Uh, having no hope. Isn't that interesting? Chap- in Romans 4, what do they have? They have the prom- chapter 9, verse 4, they have the promises. Without God in the world, there's the service of God, that issue of stuff. But the interesting thing in there is in 9.5, to whom Christ came, and then in in 2.12, he says that you are without what? Without Christ. That's devastating. Now, you, you can spend some time and iron those out. Time passed, advantage Israel, disadvantage everybody else, Gentiles, the nations. And that's what, come back to 9.4, that's what's going to happen here. Paul is going to give a short history list here, history lesson, that allows us to understand that Israel did have an advantage. We didn't, we were disadvantaged, but now we're going to understand, we're going to begin to see that God was right in what he's done to the nation of Israel by interrupting her program by suspending by temporarily shutting it down what he was doing with Israel to go then to do something else and really that's where what Romans 9 10 and 11 is going to get us to it is going to show us here's religion and how they attack us here's how to answer those attacks but really hey this is what God did with Israel and he's right in doing it and oh, by the way, in chapter 11, we'll get down there, and there's a warning to the church that if you waddle off in unbelief, guess what's going to happen to you? He can do the same thing to you. The severity of God fell on them. There, later in Romans 11. And you get in Romans 11, and I tell you what, people just get stupid with that stuff. 
not stupid and dumb, just crazy. And you don't need to, because the verses say, you let the verse say what the verse says, and it's, I don't know, to me it's pretty clear, but I just, I, you don't, there's no reason to read into that. And again, that's where that covenant theology stuff just seeps in. And it seeps in not willingly, just, it just seeps in over years of hearing different things. And when you get into that, we'll get over there, we'll spend eight or nine or ten weeks looking at it, okay? But uh, you, you laugh, I'm serious, because just you start talking about grafting this and that, and, oh my goodness, but if you start in nine with what's how God's working, later in 11, it's easy. What happens is, is they, we'd like to pull 11, 17 down to 25 out and dissect it, and he can't. It sits in a context, in the context of 11, but also of chapter 9 and 10. Anyway, 9-4. Let's spend a few minutes looking at the list. To whom pertaineth the adoption? Boy, what a great thing. By the way, we, we have an adoption, Okay. It's just different. It isn't, and it's different in that their adoption is something very specific to them. Ours is very specific to us. Come back with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4. And just notice this issue about adoption. Exodus 4, verse 22. Exodus 4, 22. God's talking to Moses. They're going to be going into, he's going to go in and see Pharaoh. Aaron's joined the, the gang uh, and is going to go in and help. Verse 22, and thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. There's adoption. Even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go. It's interesting that when he says, everybody says, Moses said, let my people go. But he didn't always say that. He said what? Let my son go. There's an identification here of who Israel is. Who are Israel? They're, the, they're, his, they're, his, they're his son. They're his. That he may serve me, and if thou refuse, so let him go. Behold, I will slay thy son, even thy Firstborn, And it came to pass, by the way, in, in the end, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Notice again, my son. Israel is God's son. He's their firstborn. The, the rest are what? Without God. Ephesians 2.12. You're without Christ. The rest of us, the Gentiles, can't say, I am a child of God. Now, we're not talking about the proselytes, so don't ask me, okay? We're, we're talking about Israel as a whole. You know, sometimes I, I wonder about people's questions going, can't you just make an assumption that we're not talking about that? Because well, who are we talking about here? In Exodus 4, we're not talking about proselytes. We're talking about a mixed multitude of the nation of Israel who's in Egypt trying to get out, see, is it my firstborn? A Gentile wouldn't come up here, an Egyptian wouldn't come up here, oh, no, no, wait a minute, that's me. He says what? No, they're mine. They belong to me. 
They're the adults in my family, if you have to say it like that. And again, adoption in Scripture isn't talking about moving one family to another family. It's talking about the status within that family. Come over to uh, Hosea. It's after Daniel, Hosea 1. By the way, it's very interesting, firstborn. Do you know why John 3 to Nicodemus, God says, Jesus says to him, you have to be born again? And Nicodemus goes, so what, you've got to crawl back in the, mo the mo mother's womb and all this? And he's like, no, you're born of what? Spirit. See, they were born one time physically of God. They need that second birth, the spiritual birth, to take care of the connection to the sons of Adam because Israel's program is going to have a two-pronged situation. I heard a guy one time call it Israel's salvation package. I'm like, meh, okay, I could, because you've got to have two. You've got to have one, the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then two, you've got to have the spiritual component taken care of. Follow that, okay? You got a Hosea. Oh, Jose, can you see? Come back to Psalms 22. Psalms 22. Psalms 22. Notice verse 23. Psalms 22, the great psalm, the first 21 verses are about the cross and Christ hanging on the cross. And then from 22 to the end, he talks about the glory. If you look at verse 23, ye that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye the what? Seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye the what? Seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard him, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat. Well, there's the meek inherit the earth, Matthew 5. But what I want you to see there is that seed of Jacob, that seed of Israel. Sons, family, that's who we're talking about. So who's the cross really, who did Jesus really come for? Came for them. Get them squared away. Then you worry about the rest of us. Hosea 1, very interesting in Hosea 1. Hosea 1, look at verse 8. Uh, oh, Hosea goes and marries up on Gomer there, and they have a bunch of kids. Hosea 1.8, Now when she had weaned Loharamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Isn't that interesting? What's happened to Israel historically? What are they now? They're cut off. They're accursed. They're not my people. But look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Isn't that interesting? You're... You're not my people, but there's going to be one day in the future when there's a remnant shows up over here, and guess what they're going to be? They're going to be the sons of the living God. That's John 1, verse 11 and 12. He came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. 
To them gave him power to become what? The sons of God. Not born of, of uh, blood. I, I always mess up verse 13, sorry. Which were born not of blood. Descendant didn't get them there. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. Nothing physical happened here. But of who? But of God. This is a spiritual birth. So when you come here, go back to Romans 9, since you come across there. The adoption, to whom pertaineth the adoption, by the way, their adoption is yet to be fulfilled. Because that believing remnant, the true Israel of God, isn't on board. They were there in Acts 7, and the stoning of Stephen, they're scattered. But what happened to them? They, well, eventually they all died off. They went away. Why? Because God interrupted their program. They became the poor saints in Jerusalem. They, it hasn't been fulfilled yet for Israel. It will be fulfilled. Hosea 1.10 is talking about the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And that's where it will be fulfilled, where their spiritual issues will be taken care of. And the glory, 9-4, and the glory. Come back to Isaiah 46. What kind of glory was Israel going to have, or did God provide for Israel? Isaiah 46 and verse 13. Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So Israel is whose glory? God's glory. But where, when are they placed in Zion as his glory? They never had that in the past. The closest thing they had it to was under King David and Solomon. He's looking where? Future. Come over to chapter 60. Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. So now this is about Israel. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the, earth, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Again, Israel is the vehicle where the glory of the Lord is going to work out through to the earth. It's going to shine in and through Israel. And who's coming to that glory, glorious light? The Gentiles are. Now, we don't do that, do we? We're looking forward to shining glory and light in the heavenly places. So when you think about this... Again, it hasn't happened yet for Israel, nor do we fulfill it, nor will we, be, go back to Romans 9 now, nor will we do any of that. Rather, what will we do? We'll do our program, and Israel will do her program, and, there's, and God's good doing both and taking care of business. All right, 9-4. And the covenants. Now let's think about these just quickly. We're not going to run a bunch of verses. The fundamental covenant, the basic covenant, is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, 
it gets listed out for you. It's ratified again, or it's, it's ratified with him, with Abraham again, then with Isaac, and then with Jacob, and then over with the 12 tribes. The Abrahamic covenant is foundational. It has a promise of a land, of a seed, and of a blessings to all the families of the earth. Okay? Then you have what is called the Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant is an amplification of the land component in the Abrahamic covenant. And what the Palestinian covenant says is God says, I will restore the land. I will place you back in that land. I'm going to do it for you. The Abrahamic covenant says we're going to do all this. And what what does Israel try to do? Go help God out and do it. And God says, stop. Actually, they're getting kicked out, and they think they're going to lose the land. They're getting destroyed in the land. And God has to go to Moses and say, listen, you tell them that I will restore them and the land and them in the land. So the Palestinian covenant comes along, and it amplifies that. Then you have the Davidic covenant. And it comes along, and it amplifies the seed line issue component. The throne, the seed is going to be a king and sitting on a throne. Because what, what's happening is, is what does Israel want? They want a king like everybody else. And they went and got Saul, which they did after their own heart, instead of waiting for God to do it for them. And Saul was a louse of a king. Everything Saul promised to do, David and Solomon ultimately do, but he was just a bad news. So he lays in and amplifies that issue that one day the king will come from the loins of David and sit on the throne. And then you have the new covenant. And that's going to amplify that issue of how the spiritual needs of Israel will be taken care of And then through that, how then they will then take those same blessings out to the the world, the Gentiles. Okay? Look look back with me. You've got to see this. I wasn't going to do... Look at Ezekiel. Look at 36. Ezekiel 36. It just is fascinating how this is going to work in the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36, uh, you, and by the way, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, that's where the New Covenant is in the Old Testament. You really need to read the whole chapter. It's fantastic. Ezekiel 36 is the same way. starts in verse 24, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness. And from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Okay? That's the new covenant. That is a permanent solution to Israel's spiritual needs as they're going into the kingdom. Now, look across the page at verse 36. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know. 
So obviously, after the second coming, there's still people heathen around about, aren't they? So the second coming does not wipe out humanity. Okay, it doesn't, sorry. Again, that covenant theology stuff seeps in on this stupid stuff. This, it's not stupid, this stuff, and it just makes you quit thinking. If the heathen are left round about, that means what happened? God's, his judgment is only there for very specific issues. Verse um, 36, Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build and ru- and, uh, the ruined places and plant that was, uh, was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel. Israel is going to come and make a petition to God on behalf of the heathen to do it for them. Do what for them? Well, what did God do for Israel? New heart, took care of all their spiritual issues. Israel has had a change of heart spiritually. They would never have talked to a Gentile. Stay away. Now they go to the Lord and say, what you did for us, do it for them. So what does the Lord say? I will increase them with men like a flock. As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem and her solemn feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And you guys think I'm nuts about the Lord going to use the rest of the planetarial system out there for places for people to live. And you got verses like that that say there's going to be flocks of men that are going to increase. you got to put people somewhere, even if there isn't sin, <laughs> and they're not, you know, but you still got to put them somewhere. So, you know, you got, anyway, go back to Romans 9. So the covenants, but you have one more, the Mosaic covenant, the law covenant, right? The, the, the death covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, uh, 9.4, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, okay? The law covenant provides for Israel the ceremonial and the civil life that they're to have. And that Mosaic law, it's got the if and then, the condition to it. It's a death covenant. But one day, Matthew 5, he talks about one day the law being taught in the kingdom. But it will be taught as what? Not the Mosaic law, but the what? The Messianic law. The law of I, write this in your hearts, and now you're able to go and do. Follow that? So the law, the giving of the law here, again, all of this is what? Future. It's not even, uh, look, look, look there at Matthew 5. We got a moment here. I say that and then I get off and something runs through my brain and I catch it and go a different way. Look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5, we've got the Sermon on the Mount. He just gave them the Beatitudes. He's talking to them about the, the character and the lifestyle of the citizens of the kingdom. Okay? And he says, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. That verse, every time you hear someone talk about when the Lord came in his earthly ministry, he did. What does that verse say? That verse says that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament ground because he came not to do what? To destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That means the law is still in place. So the New Testament doesn't start 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, the New Testament starts with the death of the testator. So the New Testament church is really the Acts 2 church. It got interrupted in Acts 9 by a whole different church to be resumed after the dispensation of grace, the church, the body of Christ is out. So you and I are not even the New Testament church. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but see, that's where that theology just over the years have just pounded in our thinking. And it's, no, wait a second. We are sitting in a gap here, an interruption of that. The New Testament church starts in Acts 2. That really, Acts 1, really, okay? Right after his resurrection and ascension, boom, and then it runs, it's interrupted, and it's going to pick up on the other side of the interruption. Now, I know you chew that over a little bit, but when, it, when you begin to just read, jettison what we've been hammered on all the years, you go, wait a second, do you know that there's a gap in the prophetic time clock that starts at Calvary? And the design was to run to the 70th week of Daniel, that 70th week, the sign, Daniel's time cap. But now the interruption of the, prophet, of, of the prophetic program with the mystery program is really a gap within a gap. <sighs> See, got to come out on Wednesday nights. We do a lot of stuff on Wednesday nights, okay? But see, that's what's happening here. Uh, uh, Matthew 5. See, I told you I'd get off on something. And then, verse 18, for verily I say, Unto you till heaven and earth pass, not uh, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break any of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's being taught in the kingdom? The law. But not in a if then condition a fail and but a, rather there's the guy sitting on the throne that fulfills the law and we're going to go to the true lamb we're not going to do this we're going to go there okay so when he says here back in 9 4 the giving of the law the covenants again all that's future none of this has been fulfilled it's future of us now was it given to israel yeah it was it's theirs then he says Paul says, and the service of God. Now, that has to do with the worship of God, the temple worship. And just for time, we'll just run these real quick. That, if you've ever studied Israel's temple worship, it is very complex. It's very complicated. And that system, that, uh, that service of sacrifice, and you do this and you do that, do you know that no Gentile was ever allowed to be in the outer yard, needless the inner? You remember what happened to Paul in late Acts when he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple? What he did. With Ty they were ready to kill him. Why? Because no Gentiles allowed. So the service of God is that issue of the temple worship. Then he says, and the promises. Well, Israel was promised the hope of a literal, physical, visible, earthly, Davidic kingdom. They were promised that. They were promised an earthly rule and reign and a blessing to go out. That's what they were promised. Then in verse 5, whose are the fathers? That's the right of inheritance. In other words, you had to be in the right family. 
You had to be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had to be in the lineage. Then he says, um, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. And again, Christ came to do what? To save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came unto his, his people to save his people from their sins. So the history, Paul starts here with all of this history. All of Israel's advantage. Because now, starting in verse 6, he's going to stick it. And he's going to begin to describe what went wrong and why they now are no longer why they're now accursed why they're now set aside why they're now not God's people why God is right to do it why he's just in doing what he's doing and that's by the way that's why we're going to see as we go through here Paul quote Hosea quite a bit actually Paul quote Isaiah he's going to go back and use the potter's wheel He's going to do why? Because those are illustrations in Israel's history of hey Israel. This is nothing new to Israel. That's why I took you back last uh, time or two ago with Peter in Acts 15, where he looks around. It is no big deal, guys. We know what God's out there calling out of people after His own name. We got this. We know it's temporary. We know He's going to come back and finish us up. We we know that. We've been there, done that. <laughs> okay, and yet for. The religionist, it's a, no, you liar, after you go, okay? And he's going to start in verse 6 by talking about, though the word of God hath taken none effect. And if the word of God is unreliable, and that's why all this is happening, is because the word of God is unreliable. We can't rely on the word of God. And Paul's going to get down there, and he's going to say, no, that's not why. It's, why, it's because God's doing something different. Okay? All right. Dear Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for everything we have in you. And we thank you for the blessings that you've given to us in your sons in heavenly places. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. We'll see you back here at 11.